if you would then, open up to Acts chapter 14. Last week we got back into the book of Acts. We were, oh, if anyone needs a Bible as well, then the Bible's in the back there. So, um, Acts chapter 14, we got back into the book of Acts. We had a little short series on the church. What is the church? How are we to behave and operate as the people of God? And now we come back to the book of Acts. And last week we began looking at Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. Their first missionary journey. And uh, Steve already kind of gave a brief introduction to Barnabas, some things I was going to read actually. But uh, I just wanted to give a brief description of Paul and Barnabas before we get going, uh, just in case anyone's unfamiliar, or just in case we need a reminder of who these two guys are. So um, I don't think the Apostle Paul needs too much of an introduction, but uh, he was a writer of 13 New Testament letters. Uh, that's what we find in the New Testament, of course. And uh, outside of probably Peter, James, and John, he's probably the most well-known Christian in church history. That's quite an accomplishment in one sense, isn't it? Um, he has missionary journeys recorded here in the book of Acts, of course, are a big reason why. Uh, his letters, of course, as well. Uh, and the Apostle Paul, though, was at one time, he was a persecutor of Christians. We've seen this in our journey through the book of Acts. Uh, until the Lord Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and made Paul his own instrument. And we find that story in Acts chapter 9. And as you may recall, Paul's co-worker Barnabas was first mentioned in Acts chapter 4. Steve actually read from that passage this morning. The Lord works in mysterious ways. Uh, Barnabas meaning son of encouragement, and we are told that Barnabas sold a field that he had owned, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. So the proceeds then were then distributed to the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. All these Jews had come into Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Passover. The Holy Spirit had come at Pentecost. Peter got up and preached. 3,000 were saved. And so now you have all these new Christians in one sense staying in Jerusalem from their native homelands because, wow, God's doing this amazing special work. And uh, what do we do? So then they began to look after one another and provide the needs of one another. So that's how we're introduced to Barnabas. And um, that was a nickname that he had, right? And we're told that he was a native of Cyprus. Now, this is important, actually, for kind of our studies through the first missionary journeys. Why is that? Well, if we remember last week, Paul and Barnabas began their first missionary journey ministering on the island of Cyprus, probably because Barnabas was familiar with the island. At that early portion, right, he was kind of the leader. Uh, Luke records Barnabas and Paul going out in their, their first missionary journey. Before the end of the first missionary journey, Luke starts to say, Paul and Barnabas. That's significant. Paul basically takes charge and becomes the uh, leader of the group in one sense, right? But they head to Cyprus because Barnabas is uh, familiar with Cyprus as his hometown in one sense, or home island. And um, in Acts chapter 10, we are told that it was Barnabas who played the peacemaker and introduced Paul to the rest of the apostles in Jerusalem. This was after Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. Disciples, they were afraid of Paul because they knew him as a persecutor of the church, not as a disciple. And then we fast forward a bit. There was then news that came to the church in Jerusalem that many Gentiles were coming to the faith in Antioch of Syria. So then they sent Barnabas, who was in Jerusalem, to go and to oversee what was taking place there in Antioch of Syria. There was so much fruit and growth in Antioch of Syria that Barnabas went and recruited Paul to join him in his work in Antioch. So just a recap of what's taking place in the book of Acts, right? And finally, we saw last week what happened while Paul and Barnabas were serving the church in Antioch. 
Acts chapter 13, starting verse 1 says, Now there are in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, mentioned first, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, or Paul, right? While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So Barnabas and Paul have been sent off by the Holy Spirit to do this work, this first missionary journey. And we saw last week that even though there was much fruit, much fruitful labor, many people coming to faith and believing in Jesus, they were also experiencing much opposition, weren't they? Who remembers? Question of the day. Who remembers? The opposition was primarily from which group of people? Unbelieving Jews. That's correct. Good job. Good job, right? So remember that whatever location they stopped at, Paul and Barnabas, they would first enter the Jewish synagogues and they would preach there. And while while they were in Antioch of Pisidia, not the Antioch that they left from, which was in Syria, um, many Jews believed, but it was also Jews who then ran them out of the city as well. So, also, if you remember when Paul and Barnabas were in Cyprus, Elimus, the sorcerer, was interfering with the gospel message. So Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, brought the judgment of God upon him, and he was blinded for a time. So I'm just pointing out the opposition there that they were experiencing. I say this because I want to emphasize as well how exciting Paul's missionary journeys are, actually. Uh, That excitement's going to continue this week, and it's going to continue as we go through the book of Acts. And before his, Paul ministry, before his ministry actually began, God had promised special things concerning it. Uh, Paul would carry Jesus' name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. However, he was also told that he would suffer greatly. It was Jesus, right? It was the Lord who told Ananias that Paul would suffer greatly. Uh, I will show him how much he must suffer. Now, if Jesus is saying someone's going to suffer a lot, probably going to suffer a lot, aren't they? We're going to see some of that suffering this morning. So that's going to take place here in Acts chapter 14. So this week, then, we're going to follow Paul and Barnabas, their first missionary journey, now to Iconium, Lystra, and back to their sending church in Antioch of Syria. So basically, Paul's like on a circuit here with Barnabas. They're going to go into Iconium, Lystra, Derbe. Uh, They're going to keep going, come back around, do some loop-de-loops, and head back to Antioch of Syria, all right? So, let's look at verse 1 then. Verse 1, Acts chapter 14. That all made sense, didn't it? Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue, there they go, Jewish synagogue, and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews, there they are, stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. That's all the new believers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, and some with the apostles. That's Paul and Barnabas. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of... Lycaonia, or however you say that, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Iconium, right? Uh, By the way, that's in South Galatia. And these are some of the believers that Paul writes to, the letters of Galatians to, right? That's what we see in our Bible, the letter to the Galatians. 
So next week, right, as previously planned, quick note, I'm going to pause for a couple weeks from the book of Acts. I'm going to do a quick overview of the book of Galatians. All right. Remember, as we hit certain cities through the book of Acts, we're going to pause, take a look at some of the New Testament letters that correspond to them, and then get right back into the book of Acts. So this is South Galatia, uh, Iconium, where Paul's at. Okay, back to the story then. In Iconium, just like in Antioch of Pisidia that we looked at last week, many Jews and Gentiles came to believe the gospel. However, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the unbelieving Gentiles. They riled them up against these new disciples. And if you think about it, it's really quite a low blow here by the unbelieving Jews. right? Instead of persuading the Jews that Paul and Barnabas were wrong, instead of just debating them and persuading them if they think they're in the position of truth, right? Instead of just that, um, they needed to kill them, actually, for their false teaching, right? So, uh, oh yeah, I'm sorry, this is what I meant to say, right? So, instead of persuading the Jews that Paul and Barnabas were wrong and that they needed to kill Paul and Barnabas for false teaching, they then had to align themselves with the unbelieving Gentiles of the city to stop Paul and Barnabas. In other words, they could not resist the wisdom of Paul and Barnabas, and so they resorted to really shameless tactics. These Jews probably despised the Gentiles, but now they were teaming up with them in order to stop Paul and Barnabas. This is very similar to what we saw in the ministry of Jesus and what in ministry of the other apostles as well. Bold ministry for Jesus will often result in the same treatment that Jesus himself received. Now, even though the Jews were poisoning the minds of the Gentiles, we're told here that Paul and Barnabas, well, they simply carried on speaking boldly for the Lord. They didn't let their threats intimidate them. And then God even validated their message by granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So now the, uh, now the unbelieving Jews are at a real loss. Right? They, they can't refute their message. And then God's validating their message with signs and wonders. What do we do? You know, the same thing they had to do to Jesus, right? We just have to get rid of this guy. We have, we have to kill him. Later, then, when writing to the converts at Iconium in the letter to Galatia, Paul appealed to the mighty works performed among them by the power of the Spirit as evidence that the message of faith and not the preaching of the law was the gospel that was approved by God. And the gospel here is called, he calls it the message of his grace. Why? Because divine grace is the subject matter. We preach a message of grace, that God has provided a way of salvation, grace, for any man through his Son, Jesus Christ. This is what we proclaim as well. So then due to the powerful preaching and the signs and the wonders in the city of Iconium, right? the city of Iconium was then divided, and uh, some were siding with the unbelieving Jews and the others siding with the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. And it's quite truly amazing how Jesus can literally divide a city. For that's what's happening there, isn't it? Right? He's dividing a city even though he had previously died. How is he dividing a city if he's dead? Right? This is the power of Christ because he's not dead, of course, is he? He had risen. And so he was now dividing a city through the preaching of the gospel. And not only can Jesus divide a city, but we have to understand as Christians, and this is hard to hear, but he can also divide a home. Right? For this may be the cost of discipleship even for us. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, 
and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Will we follow Christ even if those in our own household, in our own city, will not follow him? Even if they will set themselves up as enemy against us for our belief and our faith in Jesus Christ? Will we follow Christ even if it costs us family relationships? For some of this, this may be the cost of following Jesus, but it is a cost well worth it and one that we must be well aware of as disciples of Jesus. God wants our allegiance to him, of course, above all other allegiances, even the ones of our own homes. Jesus is Lord, right? Our spouse isn't Lord. Our children aren't Lord. You know, our cousins aren't Lord. There's only one Lord of heaven and earth, and his name is Jesus Christ. So then instead of having the whole city divided against one another, the rulers decide... Well, we just need to get rid of Paul and Barnabas, right? They're causing a ruckus in the city, so let's stone them. Their logic was simple. Kill them, and we kill the problem. And so sovereignly, Paul and Barnabas, they receive intel on this threat, and they're able to flee then to Lystra and Derbe and the surrounding country. And what can we suppose that Paul and Barnabas decided to do there? They go off to Lystra and Derbe. Well, they're going to preach the gospel, aren't they? So they continue to preach the gospel. It's basically like they couldn't be stopped. What kind of faith and resolve is this? You know, threats of murder and stoning and then heading to the next city, which isn't that far away, and continuing to preach. That's the kind of faith that is certain of what God has called them to do. They're certain God has called them to do this. Uh, they say before entering the, any kind of ministry for, in the church, one needs to be certain that they are called. Why? Because the ministry will come with much difficulty, so one must be certain that God has called them. But here's the thing, not just for those who are called into the ministry, whatever that means, uh, because Ephesians 4 tells us, Paul instructs that the leaders of the church are given to the church to do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. So we're all called into the ministry if we're called into Christ. And my responsibility and Steve's responsibility is to equip the saints for the work of ministry so that you also can serve the Lord uh, together. All right, so then, um, where are we at? Okay, yeah, Paul and Barnabas then. Sorry, I just lost my notes for a second. So Paul and Barnabas were certain that God had set them apart for this task. And the only thing that could stop them would be what? What do you think could stop them? Death, right? Death is going to be the only thing that's going to stop them. So let's see what exciting events take place next. They head off to Lystra and Derby, verse 8. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in uh, Lycaonian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Um, Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. 
And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they gladly received the praise. No, that's not what it says, right? These were not normal men. That's not what happened. What did they do? They tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. So, quite an event taking place in Lystra and Derby at this time, isn't it? So the people of Lystra, very fascinated with the teaching of Paul and Barnabas, and one such listener was a lame man crippled from birth. Imagine growing up without having the ability to ever walk. And he was listening to Paul, and it seems that he was quite believing of the message. We aren't sure exactly what Paul was saying, but we can be certain. He was speaking of Jesus, the power of the resurrection. And Paul sees this man and discerns that he has the faith to be made well, both physically and spiritually. So he commands him to stand upright on his feet. And it is it is as though this is exactly what the man had been waiting for because he immediately sprang up and started walking. If a person had been lame from birth, they don't just try and get up, do they? Unless they believe that God had healed them. So you see his faith here, don't you? So once again, signs and wonders are then accompanying the the preaching of Paul and Barnabas. We aren't told of the signs and wonders that were happening in Iconium. We're just told that signs and wonders. Here we're seeing an example of the signs and wonders that God was doing. But this time, the crowds, they respond a bit differently than they did in Iconium. They no doubt knew the man who had been lame, and now he's walking around. Right? This story has a lot of similarities to the lame man that was healed by Peter and John in the temple. Right? People knew of that man, and so it drew large crowds. And the same thing is happening here, except these people aren't Jews who worship Yahweh. These are pagans who worship Zeus and Hermes and the Greek gods and the Roman gods, aren't they? So they're going to respond a bit differently. How do they respond? They are so ecstatic that they think the gods, their gods, had come down to visit them in the likeness of men. Why? Well, who else could do such things? Only uh, beings who are much more powerful than we are and must be divine power. And of course, to them, their divine powers, it must be Zeus, right? So this is how they think. And you know, here's the thing to think about as well. Back in those times, local legend told of earlier occasions when the gods came down to them in the likeness of human beings, in particular, the two gods known to the Greeks as Zeus, father of gods and men, and Hermes, his son by Maya, and messenger of the gods. Uh, there's an old, uh, old philosopher, Ovid, tells the story of a pious old couple of the region, Philemon and Bacchus, who entertain Jupiter and Mercury, uh, Mercury, the Roman equivalents of Zeus and Hermes, uh, unawares, and they were rewarded for their um, they were rewarded for their hospitality. So we can now understand a bit of the context in which these things are taking place, right? That's what they think is happening here. If the gods had come down to pay the people of Lystra a visit, 
they must be greeted with the appropriate response, right? With honor. Uh, so the people, led by the priests of Zeus, prepared to offer them a sacrifice of oxen. Now they want to make sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. Why? So that they can curry favor with the gods. It would be disrespectful for them to disrespect these supposed gods. And of course, it would be extremely favorable for them to honor these gods who had come down in the likeness of men. And if Paul and Barnabas' hearts, if they were wrong, they could have completely taken advantage of this situation, couldn't they? They could have sat back, said, serve me, where's my crown? And lived as kings before the people. Right, right there, easy temptation. I am sure that most men would have taken that opportunity. Wow, they think we're gods. This is amazing. All right, we are, you know. Uh, but of course, these were God's men, weren't they? Men of faith. Right? They don't want the glory. They want to give God the glory. So it was some time then before Paul and Barnabas understood what the people had in mind. Why is that? Because it, Luke points out they were speaking in the uh, Laconian or however you say that language, weren't they? Paul and Barnabas don't speak that language. But then they start to see what's taking place. Oxen are starting to be brought to them. People are probably starting to bow down to them and things like that. And they're like, hold on, oh, wait a minute, you got this all wrong. And when they did understand, they vehemently protested by tearing their clothes and pleading for them to stop. So, as we said, right, Paul and Barnabas, they're not after their own glory, but they were seeking the glory of God. And they could have been the recipients of idolatrous worship, but for men of faith, especially Jews, right, that would be blasphemy to the highest degree, and that would have been of much greater uh, for them to bear. So they protested then that they were no gods, not even divine men, but just ordinary human beings with a nature like theirs, who had come to them as messengers, bringing them good news of the one true God. In other words, right, we are not gods, but we are the messengers of the one true God. This is who we are. And then Luke gives us here a summary of what was, kind of what was said by them. And the summary which Luke gives us here of their speech provides us with one of the two examples in the book of Acts of the preaching of the gospel to a purely pagan audience. Remember, they're going into uh, Jewish synagogues. So they're people speaking to people who believe in Yahweh or Gentiles who are you know, God-fearers as well. But a couple of times they're just speaking specifically to pagans, people who don't believe in the Hebrew God at all. Uh, the other account is when Paul speaks uh, at the Areopagus, that's in Acts chapter 17, which we'll get to later. Um, so notice then that they are not focusing their message on the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. That's what they did when they preached in the synagogues, didn't they? Uh, but here, instead, they make an appeal to the natural revelation of God, the Creator. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Here's the creator bit, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So natural revelation, what does that mean? Is the created world, and this is accept, uh, accessible to every man and woman regardless of their faith. In other words, they are appealing to the people of Lystra that the natural world reveals the one true God. This is the God whom they are preaching Right? We're telling you about the God who created all things. As a good rule of thumb then, right? when preaching to secular people like we have in our culture, it's a good idea to often begin our conversations speaking of the natural world or natural revelation. Not immediately saying Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. They're like, so what? What does that mean? Right? 
but we can talk about, you know, who created the world, right? God, and God has revealed himself through his son, Jesus Christ. Um, it has the ability to build common ground with people. And of course, we could go a lot more into discussing this. Uh, we don't have time to develop this point, though. Notice then that Paul and Barnabas are still preaching in this message here, a message of repentance. They are bringing good news so that people would turn from these vain things, sacrifices to Greek and Roman gods, false gods, to the living God. And the good news that we also proclaim to people is to change their entire course of life. Now that wouldn't sound like good news to everybody, would it? I want you to change your entire course of life. Oh yes, where do I sign up, right? Now of course that's why we preach and point to the beauty of Christ and uh, through faith they can, right? Um, but this is our call, and God has his people out there, and they will believe. We don't ask people to simply change their mind about Jesus, although, yes, that is included. We are asking people, whether we or they know it or not, to change their mind about everything. About everything. As Christians, we get a renewal of the mind, don't we? Which changes the way we think about everything about our jobs, about our families, about our finances, about our relationships, about our ethics, about our living arrangements, and the list goes on and on and on and on, doesn't it? This is what we are inviting people into when we are inviting people to believe in Jesus, right? So Paul and Barnabas are saying, to change the God whom you worship and obey, which will change the course of your entire life. And you know what? That is actually really good news because the course of life that people are on is not the correct course of life. But to change their entire course of life to the way of Jesus, yes, is the way of eternal life. This is the gospel that we preach. This is no small call, of course. It requires everything. So they go on to say then to these to these people of Lystra and Derby, right? Um, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. In other words, God did not immediately judge them like he did in the flood, but he was patient with them. Right? This does not mean that God did not care, that they were unrighteous. God's judgment was still upon them, however, it was not immediate. Verse 17, Yet God did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. We call this common grace, right? God sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God is good to everyone. This is called natural revelation. It's supposed to spark interest in people and to look up and to say, there is a God and I want to know him. But Romans tells us, the Apostle Paul tells us that we see the truth through natural revelation and that mankind, we suppress the truth, right? Because we don't want to change our course of life. So God allowed them to walk in their own ways, but he did not leave them without natural revelation. He did good to even pagans by sending the rains from heaven and the fruitful seasons, satisfying their hearts with food and gladness. They should have responded in thankfulness to God and worshipped him. And we can see what Paul and Barnabas are doing here. They are trying to take the eyes of the people off of them, aren't they, and put them on God the God whom they're preaching. I stop looking at us and put your eyes on the creator of heaven and earth. They are not the God to be worshipped, but they are pointing to the one true God who ought to be worshipped. And of course, 
this is to be our ministry as well. And through this, we can tell, right, through this account, we can tell that even though people can be really zealous and convinced of their ways and their beliefs, their worship can still be misdirected, can't it? They worship what they do not know. So we can feel the tension then rising here, right? There's an electric buzz in the city. So what is going to happen next? Verse 19, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Now they get to their wishes, complete, right? But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. I love how in just those two verses, so much there, yet uh, recorded in such a concise way, and then Luke just continues to move on, right? No doubt here, right? The unbelieving Jews in Antioch of Pisidia and Iconium were hearing of the Apostle Paul's activity in Lystra, so they couldn't help themselves, could they? They travel all the way to Lystra in order to thwart Paul and Barnabas' work. You talk, talk about enemies of the gospel, right? Talk about enemies of Paul and Barnabas, right? So angry that they have to leave their own city to go to another city in order to stop them. We can tell how jealous and unrighteously angry they were. And remember, in Iconium, what we had just read, the unbelieving Jews, they wanted Paul to be stoned, uh, but that information, it got out too soon, so they were able to escape. Now they have their opportunity. And we can see here how fickle the people of Lystra are, can't we? A minute ago, the people of Lystra were wanting to offer sacrifices to the supposed gods, and now they are comfortable with having them stoned, right? Since they don't want to receive the sacrifices. But here's the thing. I I would assume that had Paul said that they would receive the sacrifices, the oxen that they were bringing, and that the people then should stone these unbelieving Jews, then I bet the people of Lystra would have done it, right? They would have served them any way that they wanted to, wouldn't they? Right? But, of course, that's not what Paul does. So Paul was stoned to the point where everyone thought he was dead, drag him out of the city, and even the disciples probably think he's dead, right? No doubt they're probably beginning to mourn over him. But then all of a sudden he rose up and he entered back where? Into the same city, right? What's what's wrong with this guy? Uh, Of course, this sounds like a working of a miracle, doesn't it? Uh, Was Paul actually dead or was he just severely hurt? Not sure. But either way, it was God who rose him up. And then Crackers Paul decides to go back into the city of Lystra probably at night, probably at night. You think Paul had faith. I think he had a bit of faith, you know. And then the next day, though, he and Barnabas, they head off to Derby. So now they go to Derby, verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, so a lot of fruit then in Derby, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders, elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed to the, them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So this is, I mean, I just think that small passage right there too is just amazing for so many, for so many reasons. I'll point out a couple. We can see the shepherd's heart here of Paul and Barnabas, not to mention their great boldness, of course. So they go hand in hand, really. People want to kill them in these cities, yet they are entering them again. Why? Because of their love and their hearts for the new believers that are there. They love God's sheep because God loves his sheep. 
these people need shepherding and they need to be established in the truth. So Paul and Barnabas are willing to risk their lives in order right, to encourage them in their faith. Paul and Barnabas are putting the needs of the saints above their own safety. Above their own safety. Where do they get this kind of love from? From Jesus, of course, right? 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. How do we do that? Do we have to go die somewhere? No, he says in verse 17, that's not even really what John's talking about exactly. He just says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. God isn't asking most of us to put our lives in danger in order to love our brothers and our sisters in Christ. Can we then not love one another in deed and truth in the very practical ways, right? In the very practical ways that that don't cost us our life? Look at the example of Christ and look at the example of Paul and Barnabas and do not withhold love from one another. For God says, right, for God will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. In other words, if a person claims Christianity, takes his name, and we do not love our brothers or sisters in Christ, then God will not hold that person guiltless. It is a huge thing to say, I'm a Christian. That means you're taking the name of Christ. And if you're taking the name of Christ, then you ought to love as Christ loves. If you're not willing to love as Christ loves, don't take the name of Christ. Right? Why? For one sense, that's even it's going to the point of even blaspheming God, right? So you think about false teachers, false Christians. They're really doing a huge disservice, of course, to other people, but also to themselves when they stand before God, for they claim the name of Jesus and did not do the things that Jesus said. Woe to them. It's a scary thought. So why do the disciples then need to be strengthened and encouraged? Right? So why are they willing to risk their lives to strengthen and encourage them? Because it is through many tribulations, they say, we must enter the kingdom of God. Christian life is not a cakewalk. In order to endure the trials that will come, we must grow and mature in our faith. Paul and Barnabas are basically saying, right, if they do not get strengthened and established in their faith, they will not endure. Think about all the things that they saw Paul and Barnabas go through. And if they're going to say, we associate ourselves with them and we're Christians also, right, they, it's easy to understand that these, these are lands now of persecution of Christians. Right? They want to kill Paul and Barnabas. Why would they keep saying, yeah, I'm a Christian too? Right? That's kind of crazy. So they need to be strengthened. They need to have faith. One other quick note. As we see, it was imperative for them to appoint elders in the church. And this is what establishes the church. A church without elders is not really a New Testament church at all. Okay, we have to finish up here. Verse 24. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. And from there they sailed to Antioch. That's back in Syria where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared that all, had, all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. 
of course, the church at Antioch, right? Remember, it was primarily a Gentile-believing church, so they'd be very excited of the open door of faith to the Gentiles, wouldn't they? And they remained no little time then with the disciples. So they returned to their sending church, and they report to them all the things that God had done. And of course, the church was naturally eager to learn how, what had happened because it shared in the responsibility and the glory of their service. For it was with their blessing and their fellowship they had been sent out in order to extend the gospel to the Gentiles. So the missionary tour had occupied the best part of a year, if not more. And that just concludes Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. So what can we learn from this missionary journey? Of course, many things. and I've pointed out a few things already, haven't I? I just want to make a couple more points. What can we learn from this? Um, I want to point out the cost of what it took for you and I to actually be here, right? We think, of course, the cost that it took Jesus for you and I to be here. Had Jesus not died and risen from the dead, we would not be here and we would not be in Christ. Had Paul and Barnabas not gone on their missionary journeys and went back into persecuted lands after being stoned, here's the truth, we would not actually be here. We would not be Christians, right? God has used their faithfulness for the spread of the gospel to the nations. And so we look and we say, wow, God has done amazing things. Just like, of course, the church at Antioch in Syria said, wow, God has done amazing things for us, on our benefit, for the benefit of the church of Jesus Christ. And God did amazing things through their faith. But it comes, this kind of, this kind of stuff, right, this kind of spread of the gospel, it comes at great cost, great sacrifice, great service, what are we willing to do, right, in order for the gospel to spread to others? Are we willing to sacrifice, sacrifice of ourselves? Are we willing to serve? Is it, are we willing to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters in Christ as well? Finally, one other thing to point out, of course, what Luke is trying to convey here through Acts chapter 14 is that the gospel is spreading, and it's spreading through opposition, Opposition comes, but the gospel is still going. And Jesus said, as a reminder, that the gates of Hades or hell will not prevail against the church. That's good news for us, right? So we are a Christian church. We believe in Jesus. We've been born again. And yes, there is opposition, and the world hates us, and the enemy hates us. But the gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. For Jesus has overcome the world, hasn't he? And we do not base our faith off of our own performance, right, but off of Christ and what he has done and what he has accomplished, right? And don't even think of maintaining your faith all about yourself either, right? Because it was Jesus who said that all who come to me, I will never cast out. So we trust that he will sustain our faith as well. Do not trust in yourself to sustain your faith. Trust in Christ to sustain your faith. Is he powerful enough to sustain your faith? I think so. So when we believe that Christ is powerful enough to sustain our faith, we have what then? Faith, you know? And then we walk by faith because Christ, Christ did it, man. Christ accomplished it. Christ said he will sustain my faith, so he will do it. My faith is in him, and so now I can walk accordingly and follow Jesus for all of my life. Let's have that kind of faith. Let's pray.